And welcome to season two of Tour Guide Tell All. This is the official start of our second season. We are once again your local neighborhood tour guides. We're here to share with you the often scandalous and exciting moments in American history that you don't always get to hear about. Uh, I am Becca. And I'm Rebecca. And, and together, together we're, we're the Rebecca's. Rebecca's. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we're season not dropping. Two. We're not dropping that for season two. This is going to be forever. No, and that one started out really good. So we had a good one for season two. <laughs> I can't believe it. Um, we are here with our second season. This is so exciting. I want to start our episode with just like a huge thank you. A huge thank you to everybody who listened to our first season, to all of our incredible patrons. Thank you. Thank you. We got the most touching Facebook message from a listener, Nurse Lori, who I just have to shout out because she wrote us this most incredible moving uh, message about the podcast. And for those of you who've been listening to this through the pandemic know, we obviously have talked about how it's been tough for us in tourism, nothing compared to what those of you in healthcare, what those of you in education, what those of you out on the front lines have been dealing with. And the fact that any of you out there fighting during this pandemic, listen to us and our little history talks. It just blows my mind. So thank you so much. It means a lot to us and we are happy to be back to bring you even more history goodness. Um, and so thank you. Those messages mean so much to us, but we feel honored that you are inviting us into your ears and your hearts and your minds during this crazy time that may extend into another crazy year next year, who's to say? Yes, Lori's message was really wonderful and it made me cry and it just, it was gorgeous. And I love the idea that people are listening to us and drawing inspiration from our historical uh, thoughts and ramblings. And it's just, this is, podcast has been a labor of love and it's so much fun to make. And Becca is the best co-host. She's like always a thousand percent prepared and it's just been a lot of fun. And I'm so glad that it has found an audience and thank everybody for coming back for season two. We have really great stuff, including, by the way, Lori suggested a couple of topics, which we are definitely working in. We have a great season two coming up. We're excited. Most important thing I will mention is that we're going to be on a schedule of two episodes a month. Uh, so keep an eye out those first and third Thursdays is when this episode will drop. If you're a patron, you get early access and you're going to have a special feed. We'll have information going out to all our patrons about to hack access that special feed. You can always contact us if you're struggling with getting your special early access episodes. And our patrons are always going to get a monthly bonus episode, plus lots of other cool bonuses and extras. So if you're not a patron, season two is a great time to start. Um, you're going to get that early access. You're going to get at least one full extra episode every uh, month, plus a lot of other cool bonuses. And patrons get to pitch and vote and do all kinds of fun things. Uh, in fact, if you're a patron, you've just been listening to our Lady Bird Johnson first ladies episode, which is amazing. Uh, and so if you're like, I want to hear more about Lady Bird Johnson, become a patron. You can start at $3 a month. Um, it's, it's really, I think, well worth it. And it's what's allowing us to do a season two. We couldn't do another season of this without our patrons. Yes. And the Lady Bird Johnson episode is, if I do say so myself, was very, very exciting and good. Um, and that's kind of how this is going to go. We got a good fall lined up. And today we have some fun stuff. This is September. We're past Labor Day, Becca. What are we going to talk about today? We, both you and I, come from very pro-labor families, strong pro-labor, pro-union families. And so growing up for me, Labor Day was not just like have a barbecue, hang out, relax. Labor Day was remembering why we have it, right? Mm -hmm. Remembering the labor movement, understanding how much sacrifice went into it. So both you and I, when we were like, we're getting to Labor Day, we were like, we have to do something related to labor history, which I think is so important. I hope that everybody listening has like a relaxing, chill, cool Labor Day. Everyone deserves a little fun and relaxation after the summer. Uh, certainly if you've been in DC, we've been dying in August, it's been so hot. But I think it's very easy to forget that um, so much of what we take for granted comes from really hard work and sacrifice from the labor movement and that there were there have been workers um, that met with tragedy to get mm -hmm. us where we are today. And so we have a really juicy topic today because it is tragic 
but it also pits, I think, sort of a classic labor story. We've got workers, we've got the wealthy, we've got natural disasters, which unfortunately is quite timely, given the fact that we're recording this just um, a few days after Hurricane Ida hit the Gulf Coast. Um, and so it's something that sadly, I think is still very relevant today, but also is a good illustration of how far the labor movement has come. I agree. And I also would like to say that the labor struggle for late organized labor in this country continues like there are people continuing to struggle and suffer and in some cases die for the uh, dignity of work and the right of workers. Um, so this is very much present day. And um, also natural disasters. We're very timely sort of inadvertently. Unexpectedly. And yeah, I, I will say total confession, Rebecca pitched this topic. Uh, and this is something that growing up, I always heard about. This was my dad was a big union guy. We spent every Labor Day at the union picnic and we talked to like other union members. And it was it was very much Labor Day, as in the laborers yes. um, getting together and talking about labor. And I remember this always being kind of referenced as like one of those pivotal moments. But it wasn't until I was older, until I got to college, that I really understood all of the ways in which um, this disaster happens, all yes. the factors that build up to it. It makes me think a little bit of our Donner Party episode where there are just so many moments along the way where things could have gone differently and we could have maybe averted the disaster. And sadly, um, this will, will end with it. It will have tragedy in it because there's so many points along the way where a different choice could have been made. Well, let's dive right in. We're going to talk yeah. about the Johnstown flood. Johnstown is in Pennsylvania to start with. It is about 60 miles east of Pittsburgh and it's in a valley, like in a corner of a gorge. It is basically at the confluence of two rivers, the Conema, Little Conema and the Stony Creek rivers. Both are prone to flooding. As is naturally. the way with rivers and valleys. As is the way with rivers and valleys, that happens. And Johnstown has a history of flooding. It actually still kind of does um the it's at the base of a gorge like it's you know kind of low lying and rivers are rough uh, a lot of snow melt that kind of comes down this the um the way there's a, just a lot of um flood activity in this uh area of the world it is a uh, in the late 1880s it is a about twenty-five thousand people working class it's a working class mill town and they are right in the heart of Pennsylvania steel and coal country. This is exactly where you're picturing. If you're picturing people descending into mines or working in steel mills, that is what you're thinking of. Uh, you are in the right spot for people being deeply exploited for their labor to wit. They have, they work at their mills, 12 hour shifts, six days a week. They, every two weeks, the shifts would switch from day to night. And so one of the shifts would be forced to work the dreaded long shift, which is 24 hours, like 24 hours. People are working at a steel mill, which I'm not really super clear on what goes on in a steel mill, but I know that there's a lot of stuff that can kill you. And it's hot and you're working up, you're standing up working with hot things for 24 hours. That is insane to me. And so to start out with, there's a real sense of sort of how far the labor movement has come because none of this is legal any longer. Exactly. Um, this is very much a time where the working conditions are uh, in favor of owners. They're in favor of the business interests. They're not in favor of the workers. Laborers are seen as um, expendable, right? Their, their safety is of no import. Um, we've talked a little bit about this when we talk about things like the Triangle Waistcoat, Shirt Waistcoat Fire. Um, you know, we've talked a little bit about this, but this is really a time where there are more jobs than there are workers almost. And so there's just this opportunity for exploitation. Um, and we're seeing this immensely. And the problem is, especially in a town like Johnstown, is that it's a company town. Everybody everybody's working for the same people. And so it makes it hard to leverage uh, at this point. Yes. And company towns are actually very bad, despite what some people try to say on Twitter. Uh, company towns are terrible. And the idea is everybody works for the same mill. And so you've got, they're all employed by this, the, the money is the same. Uh, and 
you can just see how little they care about their workers because they're forcing them to work 12 hours or, and then 24 hours once a month. Like that's an extreme amount of work. And it just, uh, this is such a great example of why we need organized labor because left to their own devices, owners will do this. And we can't trust them to have any workers' best interest at heart because they don't. They are concerned about profit. And speaking of the owners, <laughs> um, above the, so the um, area where Johnstown is, about 15 miles sort of west and north of um, Johnstown is a, the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club which is fancy schmancy very fancy. it's kind of got a really boring name like south fork fishing and hunting like you're kind of picturing a couple of dudes that go out and hunt in deer. a cabin or something right in a cabin that's not what this is this is despite its sort of pedestrian name this is about 50 of the best families in pittsburgh they have formed a country club basically at the top of the sort of this area they have purchased land that had already had a man-made dam creating a lake. So this dam creates the lake, they called it Lake Kanama, and the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club, including men like Henry Clay Frick, Andrew Carnegie, Andrew Mellon, Philander Knox, and also Becca, the brother of Harry Thaw from our <laughs> Evelyn Nesbitt episode. Of He's course. He's a member. That's yes. right, they were big Pittsburgh money. They were big Pittsburgh money. So they have purchased this area. They have uh, built this lovely clubhouse, which is luxurious for the late 1880s. And in fact, the building still stands. It's there now. And they have stocked this lake with fish so that they can go fishing and there's hunting and there's basically hobnobbing and society lunches. And it's a country club in the middle of the... Uh, wilderness sort of outside of Johnstown. And they they bought up this land, like you said, that already has this sort of dam that creates this man-made lake. And uh, the club buys it and they're like, yeah, it looks, it looks okay to us, right? This looks like this is all built the way it should be. Um, you know, this is an area that until this club had moved in had not been well-maintained or cared for. Um, there was probably not a lot of um, sort of uh, investigation into how well made this dam was by any means. And so at some point, the club is definitely like, well, we should probably, uh, you know, firm this up, make sure it's good. Uh, these are very, very wealthy people. They certainly in their midst must have known engineers. They must have known people who could examine this and make sure it was up to some sort of code, but they're not really concerned. It's just a lake where they fish. What does it matter? Um, so they hire unskilled workers to come and do some remodeling and rebuilding and do work, but the work that they're doing isn't really being supervised or overseen by anyone who understands structural engineering. There's no consulting engineer on this restructure process. So they're going to buy this, the fishing and hunting club, they are going to buy the existing dam, which is fine, but then they don't bother to do any work to it. So it's, and again, men like Andrew Carnegie, there are buildings that still bear his name. He was a smart guy, knew a lot about steel, knew a lot about buildings. So does Henry Clay Frick. These are, and they're just the tip of the iceberg. They're the ones that you've heard of. The idea that they have not brought in someone to shore up this dam, to make sure that it's doing what it's supposed to do is insane. And it's so very clearly states how little they care about what happens to anyone else in this area. You know that if they were building something on their personal property, if they were building a structure for themselves, they would have had an engineer. But this is simply a dam. They see the lake as pure recreation. Um, whatever's downriver or downstream is of no import to them. Not only do they not really do any real upkeep or repair to the dam that's important, they actually make changes to the dam that will increase the vulnerability of an incident. They lower the dam 
which I think is a bad idea when you're trying to hold back water. Um, you don't want it to be too low. I'm not an engineer, but this is just kind of basic science here. Um, they're also putting in screens over the spillways, um, which is all about making sure that fish can't get out than anything else. Um, they're so concerned that they might lose their fish. Um, so they're putting in all of these things that um, are only going to make this dam more vulnerable. And again, it's a complete lack of regard what, of what could happen to anyone that isn't them. Yes. And I went down a little rabbit hole about dams. You went down a damn rabbit hole. I've been in a damn rabbit hole. I really did. And wow, there's a lot of information about dams that is going to go out of my head very quickly. There are apparently human beings have been making dams since ancient times. Good, good times. Uh, this is an earthen dam. The South Fork Dam is an earthen dam, which is basically the concept of it is you pile a bunch of, move a bunch of earth from one spot to another spot to stop up water. That's basically what it's doing. It is the least sort of technological. Um, it has, uh, of all the types of dams, it is basically just when you make sand at a beach and you kind of shove enough sand to make uh, make a lake at the beach. That's basically what it is, except bigger. Um, this dam is going to initially build be built in the 1840s and 50s. It is then purchased by the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club in 1880. And they're not going to make any real substantive improvements. In fact, they kind of, like Becca said, they kind of take apart the dam in some ways. The dam is going to sag and leak. Which, which the is, leaking should have been a huge red flag that something's not right. Something's not good here. Like, again, these are people who are at least versed enough and smart enough to know that something's not right and to be able to contact someone who can help figure out what exactly is And there's right no lack of money to no. have done work that needed to be done. That's, I think, one of the, the biggest... Uh, points along this story that just riles me is we are talking about people with almost endless access to capital. These are people who this private club is bringing in money through dues and other things. There's not a lot of upkeep that needs to be done. This would have been one area that spending club money would have made a lot of sense. They have club money. They have money in their ranks. And they decide when this thing starts leaking, they go, yeah, we'll just throw some mud and straw on it. Oh, we'll hire a couple quick laborers to come out and patch it up. At no point do they decide to actually invest even a small amount of money in making this dam safe. Right. And the spillway, which should release water, as Becca mentioned, they had put screens to keep fish in to the lake. So that Heaven they forbid they lose a fish. Heaven forbid they lose a fish. And the base of the spillway has been removed. The spillway is now partially obstructed. So water can't like leak out like it's supposed to. This just makes me so mad. <laughs> and in 1889, there's a lot of snow. And as snow melts, it's going to sort of seep down and overflow into these rivers. That's kind of how rivers work. The, um, there's also an extremely rainy spring. So you have all of these things are going to combine the rainy season is far worse than normal. And Johnstown is used to flooding. Like they have had sort of low level water on the um, uh, sort of streets of town for a long time. This is not an unusual occurrence in Johnstown. But towards the end of May, you're going to get a lot of extra rain. There's a low pressure system that moves into Western PA and has uh, the heaviest rainfall that had ever been recorded in that part of the United States. They six to 10 inches in 24 hours. And this is on top of the fact, as you said, there's been snow melts, there's already been a lot of rain, things like creeks and rivers and reservoirs, everything's already full. And then you add six to 10 inches over the course of 24 hours. This is catastrophic. This is an immense amount of water that's falling um, and it's falling very, very quickly. We're already, before we even get to the lake, uh, when we get to Western Pennsylvania, we've already seen telegraph lines that are being ripped out. Railroads are completely submerged. Um, you know, this is on its way to Pennsylvania, a problem and it's getting worse every mile that it gets closer. And um, there are several sort of attempts 
to sort of like, you know, the way we do today with weather, there are attempts to let people know what's coming, but it's hard to illustrate when you've already had a rainy spring just how bad this particular weather system is. And unfortunately, people won't take it as seriously as they need to. And this includes the people near the club. Yes. And the on the morning of May 31st, the president of the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club, his name is Elias Unger, is going to wake up and see the lake swollen because there's been a lot of rain and the dam is barely holding together. And so he, and it's still raining, like the rain is continuing. And so he's going to bring out a bunch of guys and try to like basically shore up this dam uh, to let some water out before it sort of goes over the top of the dam. This is not going to be successful. Um, eventually, they are, they're going to try, they want to create another spillway, but that's just, it, they decide against it because it just won't help. They're going to try to send telegrams down to Johnstown that don't get there. And the, they are going to try to warn people as to what's about to happen. No one sort of seems to get these warnings. There seems to be at least a sense that there have been prior to this moment, there had been other times where these messages were come, oh, the dam, the dam looks full, the dam looks like it's not going to hold. And, you know, along the way, somebody's deciding, people decide that it must just be another false alarm. We get these kinds of messages all the time. We're not going to fall for this again. Uh, what's the point of wasting the time and energy? And Unger sends people to sort of send these messages, but he does not himself, I think, convey the severity of the situation because he is the president of this club his uh, name holds weight and I think if he had marched down himself perhaps it might have gone differently but along the way they, they've heard this before the dam looks like it's in bad shape um, and so they all think that it's going to it's going to be another false alarm and it's not and that's what's so um, harrowing about this and it's it is super not a false alarm the dam is breached about 3 15 p.m and it looks like it's coming for about 10, 15 minutes before that, but the dam breaks, it collapses. And 20, the, basically the entire lake empties out. So you have this huge 450 acre lake, Lake Kanama, which is now that the dam has been breached, going to rush out the breach. And we're talking- Imagine, about, it takes about an hour for all this water to empty out. That's how much water there is. Yes, 20 million tons essentially the entire lake is going to start rushing downhill. It takes like almost an hour for the entire lake to empty and it's doing so like it's rushing through this breach in the dam with the force of Niagara Falls, which is insane. It's crazy. Takes about an hour to get to Johnstown for uh, 14 miles does take, take the water some time. It is, uh, the water's traveling at about 40 miles an hour. It encounters a couple of small hamlets along the way. There are fatalities along the way. Uh, one of the first places is actually the little town of South Fork. They are high up enough that they don't sustain a ton of damage and they're early enough in this sort of process. And people sort of flee to the high ground. They have high ground to flee to. They have hills, um, which is something that Johnstown does not. And it's going to get uh, stopped for a little while. It's something called the Kanama uh, Viaduct, which is a 78-foot-high railroad bridge. So the flood is stemmed where it sort of jams into the stone arch. But then the viaduct is going to collapse under all the weight of all this water, and the flood resumes its course. And by the time it gets to a town called Mineral Point, which is below the Kanama uh, Viaduct, it is going to keep on going. They and by the time it reaches Johnstown, it hits Johnstown at 4.07 p.m. And by this time, it's not just water, although water is certainly bad enough. By this time, it has picked up everything, and I literally mean everything, in its path. It is a 30-foot-high wave that contains 33 locomotives, 15 miles of railroad track that have just been literally picked up and brought along with this flood. 200,000 pounds of steel cable, hundreds of buildings, like literal actual buildings that have been ripped from their foundations and are traveling in this sort of roiling mass of water. Trees, animals, people, uh, rocks and um, 
telephone poles and everything. It is to me essentially like a tornado, but water-based. Mm-hmm. It is it is the way in which a tornado picks up and whirls debris. That is what has happened in this vortex of water. It is everything that this has picked up along the way. So it is it, it is dangerous enough as a tidal wave, but it's exceptionally life-threatening considering all the debris that is in the water as well. And it's so terrifying to think of um, the, how much is in there. When, when you were breaking down the stats, I just, it blows my mind. It's insane, really. And it just must've looked like apocalyptic coming at you. And the noise was said to be deafening because obviously, again, it's all water. It's moving very fast. We're talking about like Niagara Falls is deafening. If you've ever been to a waterfall, it's very loud. And now not only does this water have water, it has all of this other debris. So it's not even clear either. So imagine that this isn't like the water that comes out of your tap or the water in Niagara Falls is very pristine and lovely. No, this is dirty, disgusting, um, covered in mud and animals and railroads and steel and coal and ugh. <sighs> it destroys the city in about 10 minutes like it's there's no and Johnstown is again at the bottom of a valley and we all understand gravity like and they're all essentially caught unaware um yes. there's there's been no time to repair none of these warning messages which along the way have ever made their way to Johnstown. So nobody really knows it's happening till it's too late. They're hearing it before they're seeing it. And when they see it, it's there's nowhere to go. There is nowhere to go. Some people will try to sort of scurry and scamper towards some high ground, but within, like you said, within 10 minutes, you could have sprinted as fast as possible and not gotten high ground in time. So it's just flattening. A town is gone. Yes. It's been completely flattened. There is, um, some people float like on the roofs of their houses or they float on the top of their wave, which must have been like the weirdest surfing ever. Um, There is, it's going to get caught. Once it hits Johnstown, there's a stone bridge in the center of town, which is going to get, it's going to carry the Pennsylvania Railroad across the river. The debris is going to get stopped at the bridge and resulting in the the flood surge, which surges up the other river and there the debris just basically hits this bridge and then because who knows what's in the the debris something gets lit on fire and because a lot of houses are wood in those days there's a debris that piles up 80 people are going to die right at the bridge Um, the fire at stone bridge burns for three days so there must have been kerosene or coal or something. Oh, absolutely. Caught up in there along with all that wood. It was like a tinderbox. It just goes right up. Yeah. And people are going to be smashed into this debris. People are going to be mm-hmm. crushed into it. People are going to find themselves carried and smashed into it. People will be flung into the fire without, you know, th- there's no way of stopping it, right? This is in many ways like a runaway train of water. Yes. Um, so the the threats mount. It's not just now. If you've managed to somehow survive the initial impact and you're floating along, it doesn't mean you're safe by any means because there's just absolutely at every turn something else that can kill you. Yes. And the stories of some of these, the survivors are harrowing one woman talks about how she was in her house with her seven kids and she listened as one by one they all drowned and she was the only one that survived and how she didn't lose her sanity i'll never know there are it is it's just amazing the official death toll is 2209 people but it's possible that that's low There are hundreds of people who are never found. About a third of the corpses cannot be identified. People who have lived in town for their whole lives can no longer tell where their street was. The landmarks in the town just disappear. There's no, like it's completely wiped out. Blocks of homes disappear. Debris piles up three, four stories high. Houses travel hundreds of yards because the the flood pushes them. And so they're in a completely different location in town. Um, The telegraph lines and roads are washed away. So no one can get in and no one can get out. 
So this is a town that has been flooded. There's been a fire. There's been thousands of people who have died. And now they can't get any word out. And so, you know, the threat to life continues. So you've survived the initial disaster, but now you've got people who are sick, injured, people who need medical attention. You have corpses and dead bodies, which are, are you know, just breeding grounds for disease. Um, you have desperately needed infrastructure repairs and nobody to do them. Um, it's just insane. There's a six-year-old Gertrude Slattery who later in life wrote about what it was like. And she tells these incredible stories, but she talks about just sort of like whirling around in the turrets and floating on what she just described as like a wet, muddy bank that she thought of sort of like a bed and just riding this through this incredible flood and wave and then eventually being tossed sort of from person to person till she could get to a place of safety. Um, but then she says it was the days that followed that were really so upsetting to just see a, a town gone, uh, people she'd known her whole life just gone. Um, it's just really incredible. Um, and it all happens again in the blink of an eye. It happens like 10 so fast. And they can't get anybody to help them. There's no, like literally people can't get to them. They have to rebuild the railroad lines to get help in. They are, um, and it just, imagine sorting through this. An entire town of 25,000 people has just been re reduced by about 10%. There are 99 families that are completely wiped out. They are, um, it causes 1,600 homes are destroyed, $17 million in property damage. And that's in 1889 money. That would be over $500 million in today's money. Uh, four square miles of the downtown, downtown Johnstown area is completely destroyed. They are going to find bodies as far away as Cincinnati, Ohio. Like, that's insane. One of the first people to come to their rescue, though, is Clara Barton. I love it. So Claire Barton's most uh, famous, I think, for most listeners for being the angel of the battlefield during the Civil War. Um, but I think people sometimes forget that the work that she does extends long beyond the Civil War era. The Civil War is just sort of the beginning of her outreach. But with the formation of the American Red Cross, this is exactly the sort of thing the Red Cross is being geared up to deal with, to deal with these natural disasters, to deal with these times where American towns are struck by tragedy. Um, I love Clara Barton just immensely as a historical figure. We'll have to do a whole podcast on her at some point because she extends so far just beyond um, 1865, mm -hmm. but she doesn't just go, right? She's there for five months. Yes. Uh, and they're not just like, let's build roads. I mean, they're building hotels. So people have somewhere to stay. They're building warehouses so they can organize and sort and ID the dead. Um, this is something that Clara Barton did during the Civil War. She knew the importance of um, bringing closure to family to trying to do the best to have a complete role of the dead. And so that's a big part of what Clara Barton's trying to do is provide space for this identification and then organization and burial She's absolutely uh, working to get supplies there. Um, I'm trying to imagine a little bit how we would deal with a crisis like this today. And we have so much more um, infrastructure and apparatus to mm. get, get people to a place that's been hit with a tragedy like this. I'm thinking about what she's trying to do in that time. And it blows my mind, trying to get food, trying to get basic supplies to this town with the lack of roads, with the lack of telegraph lines. And it, it's really phenomenal to me. And the fact that she's there five months is impressive, but I'm also surprised with how much they accomplish, truthfully, they really in five do. months. And like today we have helicopters and we have, you know, like vehicles that army vehicles that can get places. Like they didn't have any of those things. They didn't have cars back then. And there's really no government agency at this point that has any purview over something mm -hmm. like this. There, and there's certainly nothing on a state or local level. So, I mean, it is a private organization or, a, you know, an independent organization like the American Red Cross, which is still very young at this point. It's not nearly um, the, the organization that it is today. And there, at, the, at the height, uh, there's relief workers are going to be over 7,000 of them. They are going to build roads and bridges and telegraph wire. They're going to build houses and both temporary and permanent for the workers. Uh, they are going to 
donations are coming in from all around the United States. And in fact, 18 foreign countries are going to donate um, money uh, to help with this relief effort. Uh, they are, they have to have somebody to clear out the bridge and all the debris. They need undertakers. They request every coffin that can be found. They have 50 volunteer morticians that come in to sort of help supervise. This is an insane effort and it's really like on the one level, it's a huge tragedy, but it's also just such a great example of what we can do as a people when we set our minds to doing it. Like when we, when something needs to get done, heroes show up and do it, which is really amazing. And Clara Barton like should get more credit for this. It's really insane. The other people who show up are the media. <laughs> this is a media circus. <laughs> and, you know, we chuckle and it's not funny, but like, just as today, the media at this point, right, we're getting towards the end of the 19th century. We've had a huge boom in the number of newspapers in the United States. We have um, a lot more um, photography and visual media going out to Americans. And so this is like a perfect storm for attracting media attention because we have newspapers more than ever and so mm -hmm. they need to compete so this is a story that tugs at people's heartstrings it has drama it has loss it has everything you could possibly want and it's got the feel-good stuff the heroes coming yes. to save the day but also they can photograph the devastation the oh, debris yeah. um and this is what makes it hard as historians is there's a ton of newspaper coverage on johnstown and it's really hard hard to sort fact from fiction, because so much of what's being written by journalists and journalists at this time and the reporters who show up, it's unverified, it's uncertain. Um, if you sort of look at the Jonestown Historical Society today, even they say it's really hard to verify much of the stories that get printed, whether they were true. Many people would be identified later as having not even lived there and uh, stories being falsified. So it is sort of what we sort of maybe expect more in the 20th century, but was very prevalent then. These people are not immune to wanting to take this tragedy and make it even more tragic in their, in their telling of the tale. Oh yeah, and this sort of very perfectly dovetails with this moment. Like this is the late Victorian era, like melodrama. This fits in like so well with this like Victorian melodrama that they've got going on. Um, man versus nature, God versus man. And all the tragedy and the suffering and it's gonna, um, journalistic standards were not really existent at all back then. One photographer persuades someone to lie face down in the ruins and pose as dead. And this becomes a famous photo because it's supposed to be of a dead person, which it's really not. And so you get a lot of like photographers and journalists who don't, who want to make a buck and get a story and sort of show up to like add to this tragedy. Um, and it's like songs are written about this like this there's going to be like breathless reporting from Johnstown for days and weeks and it, it inspires sympathy which does inspire people to you know there's a lot of people who are going to be invested in this and are going to donate money to the relief which is good but at the same time it as a like Becca said it's going to distort the historical record in a, in a real way blame <laughs> is going to fall very swiftly and I think correctly on the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club. Yeah, it's pretty clear to people that while, you know, the rainfall and all this natural element was, was nobody could plan for that, it becomes very clear that this dam was a hazard, mm -hmm. that there were many points along the way that it could have been improved and was instead almost, uh, worsened by the additions and work that were done. Yes. Um, so it's pretty clear. You see it really quickly in the record that people are going, this club is to blame. Um, we're pointing our finger at this club. Why wasn't more of an effort made to alert us? Where where was where was everybody? What what happened? Yet even though the blame is so clear, we don't really have um anybody who have suffers any consequences from this, which is unfortunately a theme in some of these episodes listen white dudes fail up man this is a real this is a real thing um they are going the coroner's jury is going to very quickly convene and they are going to choose one person's death to stand in for all of the rest 
because basically they all kind of died of the same thing. And so they're going to pick one and make the judgment on that just to sort of, I think, speed this process along. The cause of death is drowning, uh, but they're going to determine that the cause of death is drowning due to the negligence of the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club. Lawsuits are going to be filed, but as you can imagine, the members of the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club know a lot of lawyers. Some of them, in fact, are lawyers. They know there's a lot a- of lawyers. They know a lot of judges. Yes. Um, and there's a concern, right, that if they are found liable for this, what kind of precedents will that set for the future? Um, you know, these are men who have developed and purchase land in many places. These are men who own properties all around the country. These are men who have their hands in a lot of different pies. And so there's a real concerted effort to protect the interests of those in the club more than anything else. Yes, these are, I mean, goodness, if you hold them accountable for one action, they might be held accountable for other actions, and that would be a tragedy. Uh, One of the members of the club is a man named Philander Knox, which is legitimately a great name, and he is at the head of a law firm of Knox and Reed. Reed is also a member of the club, and the two of them are big-time lawyers, and they are going to be basically in charge of defending the club, and they're going to do a really good job of it. Uh, they, no money is ever exchanged. There's not a dime given out in uh, compensation uh, from the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club. They do such a good job at persuading everyone involved that this was a natural disaster. This was the, the hand of God, that it could not possibly have been foreseen. And therefore the club is not responsible which is insane. Like, yes, obviously like all that rain was a natural disaster, but the fact that you didn't maintain the dam was not. The failure of the dam is what destroys Johnstown. Yes. Period. And and that, that falls very much at the feet of the club. Um, And I find it fascinating because of course, these are, these are men who see themselves as philanthropists and good men. And so they donate to relief efforts, you know, thousands of dollars, but there's 3 million, almost $4 million in relief funds that come in. And a few thousand of it comes from Carnegie Frick, uh, the men in this club. Much of it comes from hardworking everyday Americans uh, across the country and international relief Mm -hmm. organizations that send funding. Um, it's sort of laughable today when we see how much was raised and how little of it comes from these men who easily could have donated millions. Much more. Carnegie, Andrew Carnegie builds a new library, which does still stand uh, in Johnstown. And like they donate some money, which is, I guess, good of them. But this is why you can't rely on private entities to do this sort of work. This needs a concerted effort by the government to take care of these people to because you can't rely on private donors to step up clearly you know they're not willing to do so only half of the men who are members of the south fork fishing and hunting club are going to donate even a dime half of them don't even donate anything which is insane and in case you're wondering like again they (laughs) These guys only fail up. Philander Knox, the guy who's like head of this lawyer, is later going to become attorney general and senator. I mean, <laughs> just, I just, none of the people in Johnstown were ever attorney general or senator or secretary of state. I'm just saying. Um, this is the largest loss of civilian life until September 11th. I'm raising a question mark on that because not too long later, we'll have the Galveston hurricane in 1900, which is a lot trickier in terms of calculating a death toll. We have a lot of questions uh, and the ranges for the Galveston hurricane are somewhere between 8,000 to 12,000, like we don't know, but, and that's also a natural disaster. So I don't know if that somewhat is comparable or not. That's the, that I did see that. that I did see that too. I saw that too. I assumed the difference is that Gal- the Galveston hurricane, which I know almost nothing about, was actually a natural Fully disaster. Fully a natural disaster. Whereas this is not. I'll allow it. 
Okay, fair enough. I just had a question on that because I was like, not too long after we'll have this other terrible natural disaster, which would make for a great episode, actually, the Galveston hurricane in 1900. Um, but yeah, this is the largest loss of civilian life until September 11th, if we want to say because of a man-made I don't know. I don't know how we designate this. Or let's just say it's one of the two largest losses of civilian <laughs> life before September 11th. Like that's insane. Like this is this is a lot of people. It's the worst flood it, to hit the United States so in the 19th fast. century. It's a lot of people in such a short amount of time. I think that's what really boggles my mind. Is this is not um you know, it's not several days of something that occurs. It all happens in an afternoon and in an instant. Yes, it's really amazingly fast. The last survivor, Frank Schmo, Shomo, died in March of 1997 at age 108. What? Yeah, that's crazy. Um, and Johnstone, this is not Johnstone's last um, brush with flood. They had a St. Patrick's Day flood in 1936, which is going to be a huge... Um, it's called the part of the Great Pittsburgh Flood. And at this point, the Army Corps of Engineers is going to dredge up the river within the city and build concrete walls. They're going to proclaim Johnstown to be flood free. In fact, Franklin Roosevelt kind of gets involved in this. This is a pretty big deal in 1936. Um, the flood, the new rivers are going to withstand a hurricane in 1972. Uh, but in 1977, in July, severe thunder thunderstorms are going to drop 11 inches of rain. Uh, and there's uh, another uh, eight, uh, flood, not this kind of a flood, uh, but there is going to be um, a flood in Johnstown. So that's the most recent uh, sort of flood in Johnstown. Johnstown is still there and um, it has, they, they have, it, um, it's a, they've got a, actually a whole bunch of this property is on the National Reg Register of Historic Places, including the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club, including the Carnegie Library, which is now a museum for the Johnstown disaster. And there is some speculation that part of the reason Johnstown is not bigger and sort of more successful as a city is because industry does not want to be there because of the repeated flooding. So there's a little bit of um, sort of modern day echo of what sort of happening here is that this place continues to flood and so industry leaves which again affects workers a lot so there's a continued sort of thread through this whole thing there's also a pop culture reference are you ready for this Becca you're usually the pop culture one but I found this I am ready yeah so Johnstown the town um is has apparently a mania for hockey <laughs> and the movie Slapshot is loosely based on the local hockey team, the Johnstown Jets, which is amazing. <laughs> if you've seen the movie Slapshot, it has Paul Newman. And in the movie, he sort of refers to a statue of a dog that's in town that, according to Johnstown lore, the dog comes to warn everybody. This dog is sort of credited with sort of running through town, barking. Uh, and there's a reference to it in the film, um, which is sort of fascinating. This actually, Johnstown comes up a lot in pop culture. Um, you'll see a lot yes. of references to this uh, a lot of times. It's sort of cited as like this major natural disaster that was sort of a defining moment towards the end of the late 20th century or the late 19th century um, because we hadn't had really a natural disaster on this scale. However, we start to see more and more in the 20th century and as we're moving into the 21st century we're seeing this more and more um so there is a relevance here to the fact that these natural disasters aren't going anywhere we have to think about how we contend with them and how we deal with them uh and we sort of at the beginning sort of posited this as a labor episode uh, and it, it, it is um this is a tragedy but this is a moment that uh, labor organizers are going to point to over and over and mm -hmm. over again it's used in labor recruiting material it's used in the rhetoric of the labor movement as we move further into the early 1900s johnstown is constantly going to be pointed to as sort of a failure of owners, right, uh, of the, the men at the top of the capitalist chain. It's, you know, these these guys don't care about you. Um, mm -hmm. They're not looking out for your safety. Um, and these workers were basically left, um, left in a vulnerable position and left to die. Um, so this is something that will be one of those touch points that are used a lot by the labor movement in their materials, in their songs. There's a number of pro-labor union songs that reference Johnstown. You even hear Springsteen makes a reference to Johnstown. Yes. Uh, 
Yeah. So it's something, but that that goes much further back than Springsteen. Uh, we see it in a lot of the early 20th century labor songs. So um, this becomes sort of one of those key moments. And when you're talking to somebody in 1900, 1910, 1920, and you say, remember Johnstown, people knew what that meant. People knew exactly what had happened. Yes. And this becomes a big sort of moment. And it because of where it's positioned too, like you're in the midst of all this coal and steel country, like there's a lot of sort of workers in this area of the world who can say, hey, clearly these owners don't care about us. They're willing to let us die because they can always get more of us and that we need to sort of band together and demand that they pay their fair share and that they take care of their workers. So there's a lot of, you can see it, all, the ads almost write themselves as like, you know, we need to um, solid have solidarity with Johnstown. Absolutely. This is a great way to kick off season one or season two. This is a great way to kick off our second season. Oh my goodness. I went back in time a year and a half. Uh, a great way to kick off our second season. This was such a great topic, Rebecca. I appreciate you um, kind of pushing for it because I think it's uh, going to put us in the mindset of where we're going with our second season, trying to dig in a little more into these bigger movements. Uh, we've had a lot of good requests to um, dig in a little more on things we've referenced mm -hmm. and not gone in depth on like the labor movement, like reconstruction. So all of these things are going to be coming up. We'll continue, of course, our focus on individuals, but I think this was a good way to get us into the mindset of where we're heading over the next few months. And there's so many other things about this story. Like we could do a whole episode on like Henry Clay Freck or Andrew Carnegie or the Gilded Age. Like I find the Gilded Age to be fascinating. Like all these haves and the have nots. And it's just such a great juxtaposition that's gonna lead in so many ways to the modern labor movement as people are revolting against sort of what's happening. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of juice in this story. And um, yeah, this is going to be a good second season. I'm excited. We got a lot of good plans. Thank you guys for coming along the ride with us. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. As always, you can find us on social media. We're at Tour Guide Tell All on Facebook and Instagram and at Tour Guide Tell on Twitter. We love all of our social media um, friends and fans, but please make sure that you're subscribing and following so that you'll be up to date when new episodes drop. We'll again be sharing information with our patrons about how to access all that special patron stuff in your special feed. So be sure to be following along on social media. You can also always email us at tourguidetellall at gmail.com. Uh, and that's where you can send us emails, pitch the pod. We've gotten so many great requests. All of your requests are being integrated into season two and we will always take more. So we're excited uh, to hear what you want us to cover. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, pitch the pod, we love it. Um, thanks for coming along with us. Thanks to our patrons. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Bye, guys. Bye.